Mother's Day, Memorial Day, Ascension Day, as we noted last week, and ten days after Ascension Day is the day we just read about a moment ago in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the day that the ascended Christ sent down the Spirit. So I, I bring these to your attention not just to try and be cute or add more holidays to your calendar, but I think these two days, the days of Christ's ascension and the days uh, the day of the Spirit's descension, right, Pentecost, are the backdrop to the passage in Ephesians 4 uh, we're, we're, we're walking through both last Sunday and this Sunday. So just real quick, uh, by way of introduction, let me uh, review a little bit of what we saw in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 so far, because we're, we're going to continue looking through Ephesians chapter 4 up through verse 16 today. But in the verses leading up to our passage for this morning, uh, Paul reminded us of the deep and unshakable unity we have as Christians, right? And as we've noted this morning, right, with Hete sharing about the church in Mongolia, we've recognized that this unity we have is a global, and we could even add a, 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 an eternal unity, that we have unity with Christians on the other side of the globe. We have unity with Christians uh, in centuries past, and in whatever centuries are still to come, we are united with them. We have a deep and unshakable unity as Christians. Right? This unity isn't just a, a unity we hope to achieve. Um, as you can imagine, like a, a basketball team of a couple players who've never played together before, first day of practice for the season, right? they may hope to achieve unity together as a team, you know, through practice, you know, through the right uh, kind of mindset. Maybe they can grow together as a team. Now, that's not the unity we kind of hope to grow into as, as Christians. No, our unity is a fact established by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, is able to say that there is, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Right? But here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul also was clear to make sure that we know that our unity is not something that we just kind of receive passively. Uh, just because it's established by a fact as by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean we can just kind of safely ignore it or assume it. Right? That's why he was telling us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So although it's a deep and unshakable fact that we're united as Christians, it's also true that unity, like a, a good campfire, needs to be tended to and maintained. We need to be eager to maintain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so then last week, as we picked up at verse 7, Paul then noted another fact about our unity. That although we are one in Christ, there's still a wide variety of gifts that Christ has given, right? That's why in verse 7 he writes that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And I, I loved uh, how John Stott, the great Bible teacher, uh, summarized this passage so far. And I quoted this last week, I'll quote it again here. He said that we're not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other. That's not the type of unity we have. As if we all been mass-produced in some celestial factory. Now, on the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. And so today we'll get to continue on through verse 
16, hearing a little bit more about the variety of gifts Christ has given and how essential each one is to maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Right? Each of us, this is what we're going to see this morning, each of us are to use the spiritual gifts Christ has given to build up his body. So will you stand with me as I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and then I'll do, and I'll pray. Our, our pastoral prayer this morning is, is based on Psalm 139, but first I'll read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pray with me. O Lord, you have searched us and you know us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, you discern our thoughts from afar. You search out our path and our lying down. You're acquainted with all our ways. Even before a word is on our tongues, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem us in, behind and before you lay your hand upon us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is high. We cannot attain it. Where, where should we go from your spirit? Where can we flee from your presence? If we ascended to heaven, you are there. If we make our beds in Sheol, you are there. If we take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead us, your right hand shall hold us. If we say, surely the darkness shall cover us and the light about us be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed our inward parts, you knitted us together in our mother's womb. We praise you, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderful are your works. Our souls know it well. Our frame was not hidden from you when we were being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw our unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for us, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If we could count them, they are as more than the sand. We awake, and we are still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart 
from us. They speak against you, O Lord, with malicious intent. Your enemy, your enemies, they take your name in vain. So do we not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do we not loathe those who rise up against you? We hate them with complete hatred. We count them our enemies. So this morning, Lord, search us and know our heart. Try us, test us, know our thoughts. See if there be in, any, in us any grievous way and lead us in the way everlasting. Do that by your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So as we've noted last week, Paul has told us that Christ has given gifts. Right? Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. Right? Grace was given to each of us. Then he quotes Psalm 68 and verse 8, and he notes that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So we noted that last week. Christ has given gifts. But what we didn't really get, it, get to get into is what are those gifts he gives? What are the specific gifts? Finally here, though, in verse 11 of chapter 4, uh, we get to get more specific where he tells us, he starts listing in verse 11, that what did he give? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Right? He gives this list of a couple different people who he's given as gifts. And it, it's probably helpful to just pause for a moment. I know we're just getting started. But to already pause for a moment and think about some of the other places where Paul lists the gifts that Christ has given by the Spirit. We read some of these last week. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 would be the two main places you'd look. Um, but just for example, I'll read from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, starting in verse 8 through verse 10, where Paul writes that, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. And to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. We obviously can't get into what all these gifts are and what we make of them today. There's many of questions that these passages kick up. But there's a few things we should notice from this passage um, and any other passages from Romans 12 or later in 1 Corinthians 12, if you were to go and look those up later, a few things we should notice about the gifts uh, that Paul lists. One, you should simply notice the variety of gifts. Whenever Paul lists off gifts given by Christ through the Spirit, we, they, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Right? There are some that are very uh, teaching-based, right? There's specifically teachers. There's some, if we were to look, say, in like Romans uh, 12, where he's talking about doing acts of mercy. Sometimes it's just generosity or evangelism. Other times it's, it's, it's helping or administrating, right? There's just a wide variety of gifts. And if you're trying to kind of, uh, kind of compile all the lists into one, you'd, you'd really struggle to get a comprehensive list as well, because... Um, You'd notice, another thing you'd notice is that uh, some things are listed many times in the New Testament. Some things are only listed once. 
Some things are listed in kind of from different angles. Right? Sometimes the spiritual gifts seem to be just, just anything Christ has given to his people to build up his church. And even different times and different occasions and different places require different gifts. And so there becomes just a whole wide variety of ways to talk about these spiritual gifts. Right? Sometimes they're talked about as abilities. Right? The one who can do this or can do that. Other times it's talked about as activities. Right? The one who prophesies. The one who teaches. Other times, though, uh, they're, they're simply talked about as the people themselves. Right? And that's actually the case in our passage this morning. Right? Paul lists four people, or t- offices of people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. And I count shepherds and teachers as one. We'll get to that in a moment. Right? He lists people. So they can be talked about in a lot of different ways. It's hard to put the what is a spiritual gift kind of really into a can and kind of have that tamed and leashed to know exactly how do we define it, what it is, and what it isn't. It seems to just be anything or anyone Christ has given to his people to build up his church. So this morning we want to ask more specifically, who are these people Paul is listing? Who are these apostles? Who are these prophets? Who are these evangelists? Who are these shepherds and teachers? And I'll, I'll walk through this and I'll, I'll take the first two together, actually. The, the apostles and prophets. And I take them together because Paul's already actually taken them together. If you were to look back at Ephesians 2.20, you'd see that he already listed them together. He talked about how, there in chapter 2, how the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Right, so we can talk about them together. The apostles and prophets are foundational. And I don't think he's thinking here of every single New Testament Christian, New Testament believer who's been given the gift of prophecy, right? As we read the New Testament, there's many different people who are given the gift of prophecy. I don't think that's what he's thinking about here. And I don't think he's talking about everyone who's been sent out as a messenger, although many different people can be talked about as apostles, sent out ones, messengers. No, he's thinking of a very specific office and calling of the people who are apostles and prophets. We saw this uh, a while ago, but as Pastor Randy had been leading us through the Gospel of Mark, we have already walked through Mark chapter 3, where in verse 13, we read about how Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And out of, out of that group, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them, those 12, out to preach. And if we, if we were to go back there to Jesus' day into Galilee, we would have found many different people uh, talking about Jesus, right? They may have heard him teach. They may have seen him do some things. They'd go out and they'd spread the message in some way or another, right? Many people were talking about Jesus, but only 12 people were appointed as apostles, official messengers of Jesus. And so I, I understand these apostles and than the prophets to be their, their Old Testament counterpart, those who were specifically commissioned by God to, who could say, thus saith the Lord to his people. I think actually maybe the simplest way to summarize who are the apostles and the prophets that Paul is referring to here is to simply say that the apostles are the writers of the New Testament. 
you've ever wondered why did the New Testament books end up in the New Testament? Why do they become scripture? Right? There's a connection for each New Testament book to an apostle. Right? They have the authority to speak uh, on behalf of Jesus. And so their word becomes authoritative for us. The apostles are the writers of the New Testament. And the prophets are the writers of the Old Testament. And that's why Paul is able to call them the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The foundation has been laid. It can't be tampered with. Right? Scripture, the Old and New Testament, written by the apostles and prophets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are our foundation. They are a gift given by Christ. And we continue through into the evangelists. The evangelists are the third gift Paul lists there. And they're the ones who take that truth revealed by God through the apostles and prophets. And they bring it out. Right? They bring it out to places where it's never been before. They may travel 44 hours to get to Mongolia because they've heard there's places that maybe haven't heard in the same way that we have here. Right? So the evangelists are taking it out uh, to these unreached places, these unreached people. And then it brings us finally to this last gift that Paul lists. And as I said, it's one more gift. You're, you may think, wait, aren't there two? I look down at verse 11. It says, uh, the shepherds and teachers. Shepherds, teachers. I got to two in counting there. But I really think this is a reference only to one thing, right? As your Bible says, the shepherds and teachers, or some shepherds and teachers... You'll notice there's only one the there, though, right? Or one some, depending on your translations, right? Each of the gifts before, apostles, they got their own the, the apostles. The prophets, they got their own the, the prophets. The uh, evangelists, they got their own the, the evangelists. But then shepherds and teachers, they only get one the from Paul. Paul seems to be referring only to one group of people. Right? Just because there's the and there doesn't mean he's thinking of two people. That's pretty common, I think, in our language, but even more so in, in ancient Greek that you could have two phrases, the and in between, and it's really meant to make us think of as one, uh, as one term. Right? We, we know this in English. If I was listing off my favorite music styles and I was like, I like rock and roll, you're like, oh, could you list me a third type of music? You're like, no, 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 rock and roll. It's, it's, it's one type of... You understand that, right? It's silly for me to explain that rock and roll is not two types, even though the word and is in there. Right? Similar use of the word and here. That the shepherds... We can think of this as the shepherd teachers, or maybe even more clearly, the ones who shepherd by teaching. Right? Whereas the evangelists, we can see, they go out and they call people to repent. They present the gospel... The shepherd teachers are in charge of caring for those then who repent and believe. Right? The evangelists bring the sheep into the fold by the power of God. The shepherd teachers care for the sheep in the fold by teaching. And all of these gifts, whether we're talking about the foundational apostles and prophets or the evangelists and the shepherd teachers we have here today, right, each of these gifts can be called a minister of the word, right? The apostles and the prophets, they're the foundation. And the evangelist makes the scripture, the scripture known where it hasn't already been known. And the, the teachers, the shepherd teachers, help that truth go more deeply in. They're all ministers whose ultimate tool, whose ultimate power comes through God's word, right? God builds his church 
by his word, both from the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. Right? That's why we, we sang our first song this morning. It has that phrase we repeated over and over again. Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord. We said things like, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. How does God feed his people? By speaking. We would go on and we sang later, Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us, fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. How does God fulfill his purposes in us? By speaking. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the height of your plans for us. How does he do that? By speaking. Finally, speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. How does he do that? He speaks, and he speaks through the apostles and the prophets. And then with the word of the apostles and prophets, the evangelists and the shepherd teachers go out. So we can see God does his work by his word, and Christ in his love has equipped his body with ministers of the word through the power of the Holy Spirit. But as we keep reading, we see that ministers of the word are not the only ministers. I read verse 11 again. I hear that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. But then verse 12 tells me why he gave them. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Those four gifts Paul listed in verse 11, that, that was far from an exhaustive list, right? Most of us here, uh, when we understand that we've been given some sort of spiritual gift, right? Grace has been given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. But we don't see ourselves listed in that short little list Paul gave in verse 11. We don't count ourselves among the apostles, prophets, evangelists, or shepherd teachers, So what is there left for us to do, the rest of us? Well, the work of the ministry. The the ministers of the word exist to equip the saints, God's people, you, for the work of the ministry. If you were to ask yourself the question, like, you know, whose job is the work of the ministry? What's the first answer that comes to your mind? the pastors, right? That's often how we think. But no, this passage tells us it's, it's the saints, the ministry that belongs to each Christian. We, 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 we need not connect just ministry, the work of the church, with what pastors do, with what, you know, structures we have as, you know, we have in our budget, or who we have on staff. Well, what ministries does this church have? Well, I went online, and I looked, well, we've got a, a youth pastor, so we must have a youth ministry. Well, we've got a direct, someone who directs youth, women's ministry, so we must have women's ministry, so we do that. Oh, we don't have any director of outreach ministry. We must not do outreach as a church if we don't have that on staff and on our website. There's not something you can click down onto. Right? That's how we often think. Unless it's kind of this official top-down thing, we're not doing it. But no, the, according to this passage, the thing the pastors and the staff do is what prepare you for the work of the ministry. I, I think that our view of ministry as something that pastors and trained professionals do can lead us into, into some of those dangerous errors that the late medieval church became notorious for. 
All right, just quick church history lesson. Is, uh, by the time the 1400s rolled around there in the medieval European church, there had grown to be a giant gap between priests and laity. Right? Priests and monks, right? they did this spiritual work. They did ministry. Lay people, they, were, they couldn't touch the things of God. They couldn't be trusted with that sort of thing. Right? So the priests and monks, they did spiritual work, like, like praying. And they'd have to do it on behalf of the common people who did worldly work, like you know, earn money. And they'd do that on behalf of the priests and monks. Right? They'd then use their money they'd earn and the power they'd earn to be able to give to the monastery or whatever. Right? But it was very separate. You had the spiritual ministry world of the priests and the monks, and you had the common dirty world of the laity who couldn't do any. Ministry, And so when the Reformation began there in the 1500s, this division, this false dichotomy between the priests and the monks and their higher plane spiritual work and then the drab common work, when that false dichotomy was one of the main things that the Reformation brought down or was under attack. Luther and the other reformers were able to demonstrate just how unbiblical that division was. Instead, they, they argued that the Bible presents us with what, what often, if we're talking about it nowadays, we call the priesthood of all believers. Or I really think we could take from our passage here, uh, we could call it the ministry of all the saints. Right? Understanding the priesthood of all believers or understanding the ministry of all the saints doesn't denigrate the idea of pastors and those who are in vocational ministry. Ephesians 4.11, the verse we just looked at, makes it clear that ministers of the word are important. But when we understand the ministry of all the saints, the priesthood of all believers, what it does, it doesn't make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turns every kind of work undertaken by God's spirit-filled people into a sacred calling. So understanding the ministry of all the saints It changes your view of your own work, your own place in life, the life God has dealt out to you. It changes your view of that in your supposedly secular place. And it also changes, hopefully, your understanding of those who are ministers of the word. What is happening here week after week? And I literally mean like right here at this pulpit as we listen to a sermon week after week. What's happening? What happens here is, is meant to equip you to fulfill your ministry calling throughout the rest of the week, right? You're that odd conglomeration of roles you have in life, relationships, jobs, assignments, opportunities, right? That's your calling. That's your area of ministry. And the ministry of the word here is meant to equip you for that. But notice that in order to be best equipped in all those different places, that wide variety of places that you find yourself called into, you do need to be equipped by the ministry of the word. Shepherd teachers do exist to equip you for that. But together, as we look at our passage, we see that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers, and the gifts of each and every saint... Right? They're given by Christ 
for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is how Christ's body is built. By the work of the ministers of the word and the rest of the saints. Do you see the kindness in this? Do you see God's grace in this? God has not left us as malnourished orphans. He, he, He equips his body with the spirit of life that we can mature. His body can be built. But in order for that to happen, we'll see here in this passage, in order for that to happen, we all need every part. Because as we keep reading, we see that no part is extraneous, no part is indispensable for building up the body. That's why he continues on in verse 13, saying that uh, we've been given these gifts to exercise these gifts until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Together, our variety of gifts, with our variety of gifts, what do we do? We pursue one goal that, that, that Paul kind of described in three different ways. Um, he talks about what, what are we, we're, we're working until we attain what? To the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's one of the ways he, he describes it. Another way he describes it, though, is that we're, we, and we're working, we're using these gifts until we attain, secondly, mature manhood. Until we grow to become the mature man. Or thirdly, he he puts it, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Three different angles on the same goal. That we're growing in in our united understanding of the truth, right? That's what he means by the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's why if you went through the the membership class, um, our doctrinal statement is part of membership. And when we have baptisms, reciting the the creed is is part of our baptism services, right? Because we want unity. One of our goals as Christ's body is to have unity in those summaries of the faith, right? Unity of our knowledge of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. But it's more than that, right? Together we grow to mature manhood. And what's probably important to notice here is that this isn't just a goal that you, you individually who are listening to me and sitting in a chair right now, you grow to maturity. And it would be nice if the person down the row from you also grew into maturity. And then like people a few rows back from you, hopefully they're having their own personal maturity journey. Right? No, this is a cohesive, we are one new man that Christ has created in place of the two. We are one new man. This is a cohesive, this is a collaborative maturity. It's different than maybe what your local gym advertises to you, right? Where you can become a member and you can go on your own fitness journey, right? That's often how how they'll present themselves, right? You, You join here, you go on your own fitness journey. And if the person on the weight machine or the treadmill or the elliptical down from you is on a totally different fitness journey, they're growing differently or they're nowhere near as consistent as you or way more consistent than you, no big deal. 
you're there for your own fitness journey, they're there for their own fitness journey, right? We could think the same way foolishly about church. You're here for your own spiritual maturity growth, they're there for their own spiritual maturity growth, and yeah, it's great. We, we want the best for each other, but, you know, my growth doesn't depend on your growth. But that may be true at Planet Fitness or whatever your, your gym of choice is. Uh, it's not true in the church. This is one body that is maturing. The one new man. But the great grace is that together we grow into what Christ has already made us. We grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ's. And Paul's assured us that's what we already are by receiving the Spirit. We already are the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we can see our, our growth is not, again, about achieving something that God hasn't already given. Our growth is all about receiving more fully the gift Christ has already given us. It's about going deeper into who He already has made us. There's such great grace in this type of growth. It's not a prove yourself. Maybe you can accomplish that. Maybe you'll hit that standard. It's like, no, Christ has given it to you. Now go deeper. Receive it more fully. And it is a gift. This growth, this maturity is a gift. Maturity and growth as a church body stabilizes us. It calms us, right? We don't want to be children. That's what he goes on to say in verse 14, right? We may no longer be children, right? The reason we grow is that so that we may no longer be children, right? There's many delightful things about childhood, no doubt. But I think that we tend to maybe over-idealize it, those of us who are older, uh, I think because we didn't get stuck in it. Right? If we really had to live as children for the rest of our lives, we would not idealize it the same way. Right? Childhood is a wonderful gift, but it's a wonderful gift to grow through. Right? We want maturity. Because children, they're, they're not as mature. They're not as stable. Paul compares them to a small boat in a big storm. We know he wants us to no longer be children. Why? Because they're tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What we face as Christians are storms, storms of deceit and cunning. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter puts it, quite strikingly, where he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How would you feel if I was like, hey, on your way out to your car, uh, watch out, there's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Have you on edge, right? How lulled to sleep can we be by the deceitful schemes, those storms that are out there? Peter needs to remind us. Paul reminds us. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. If we just idealize immaturity and being children, 
will be devoured through his deceit. The fact of the matter is, on our own, on our own, we are children. On our, you may think of yourself as personally mature, but even the strongest swimmer, when the riptide really comes, is as good as a child. They'll just be pulled right under. Right? So, don't hold church fellowship at arm's length. Don't remain on your own. That's how we remain as children. Right? I, I know church fellowship, right? This community we have here, I am very thankful for it, but I know it's not perfect. Why do I know that? Because I know myself. I know my own selfishness. I know my own weaknesses. And I imagine that you are at least maybe half as much as sinful and selfish as I am. So we've got a community here of sinners. And if you get real close to them, they're going to sin against you. You're going to, get, you're going to, you're going to see some of their weaknesses, their, inif- their, 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 their just messiness. And so there's a real dis- temptation in the name of maturity or maybe in the, er- in the name of discernment to kind of leave that fellowship at arm's length. To never get too caught up. And you can say, well, I'm not... I'm not sullying myself with their problems, their sinfulness, their immaturity, their wacky ideas, or whatever, right? Their worldliness. Keep it at arm's length. We're leaving ourselves as vulnerable children. Or imagine yourself in this situation, right? You move to a new town, and so you need to look for a new church. Um, it's possible that where you move won't have a perfect church. What do you do? I mean, so you're going to visit, and there will be something that you'll find that will be wrong with the church you visit. Now, there's an importance for, of, of discernment, right? Doctrine matters. Practice matters. But I, I, I've seen this. I'm not old, but I'm old enough to have seen this phenomenon enough, right? The person who holds out from fellowship in the name of discernment or, or, or they, they hem and haw about joining a local church in the name of discernment who ends up being the one who just gets carried away. Right? They, they, they remain aloof from, though, the imperfection they see over there. Right? That church that had this problem and that problem, well, I just haven't gotten established yet. And next thing you know, you check in later, and they're the one who's been brought, brought downstream by every wind of doctrine. They've been pulled, un- pulled under by the cunningness of the great deceiver. It's tempting to withhold or hold back from fellowship because of our imperfection. But what we're doing when we do that is we're cutting ourselves off from Christ's main way of nourishing us. Right? Through other imperfect, far from perfect believers. Right? We cut ourselves off from other parts of the body, right? Paul continues on. He shows us that stabilizing maturity comes by being together. It happens in relationships. It comes, right, as he says, in the place where instead of being tossed about and facing all this cunning and deceitfulness, it happens in verse 15 in this place where rather speaking the truth in love 
instead of being children, we're to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Right? It happens in this place where we're able to speak the truth in love to each other. Right? Truth in its fullness, love in its fullest fullness. Not just a balance of truth and love. I hear people talk about that sometimes. And I, like, oh, you know, we really need to balance truth and love. And that's not wrong, but when I picture in my mind balancing something, right? If I have to balance two things, truth and love, just for example, and one's out of whack, right? One, oh, we're not balanced. Problem solved with me. What can I do to solve this imbalance problem? I could just make less of one, right? If, I, if truth and love are things I need to just keep in balance, I could just kind of go light on both. Pretty easy to keep those in balance. I'm a little bit loving and I speak a little bit of truth. But that's not the call here. No, all out 100% truth, speaking the truth all out in love. Notice how personal this is, too. Truth can be printed. I'm thankful for all sorts of ways in which truth is printed. It can be published. It can be recorded onto a YouTube video and spread out for millions to hear. But it's hard to speak the truth in love without doing it personally. Right? Speaking the truth in love happens in face-to-face conversations, flesh and blood in the same room as flesh and blood. Right? Paul, as he writes to us here, doesn't seem to think we grow up in every way through technique or by amplifying just a few of the most gifted voices. It happens through flesh and blood, face-to-face conversations where we speak the truth and love. And it is through this method, if that's what you want to call it, that we grow up in every way into him, into him who is the head, into Christ. But notice that this growth, finally only happens when every part is doing its part. Right? From Christ, from, the, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by, by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is eat, working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right? No part of the body can flourish without the rest of the body. We know this. Right? We know this on the physical level. Uh, I can give you one striking illustration. It was the Sunday after last Thanksgiving. Uh, I broke a rib. It happened uh, right over there, about where John, where John is sitting. Uh, we were playing uh, right after youth group on Sunday nights, as we tend to do. We were playing soxer. Yes, not, not soccer. Soxer. It's soccer in your socks. What could go wrong? And I... Uh, I fell pretty hard. And at first, I thought I'd just gotten the wind knocked out of me. Uh, so I, I took a moment, and then another moment, and I thought, you know, I'm done for tonight. That, that didn't feel good. Uh, by Monday morning, I was convinced I had a muscle strain. And I may have. That may actually may have been, been part of it. And, and so I, I, I self-diagnosed myself with some strained intercostals. I thought, you know, it's a big hit, my kind of arm went off. I must have strained some intercostals. Um, as the week went on, 
uh, I, I didn't get better. In fact, I, I, got, I got worse. Uh, it was not a fun week. Uh, sleep was not much of a relief. Uh, yeah, it wasn't much I can do, sitting in chairs, whatever. It was not, it was not good. So as the week went on, uh, I finally headed to urgent care and got a second opinion on my expertly diagnosed strained intercostal diagnosis. And they had this interesting machine called an x-ray, and they did one of those. And uh, I had one, one broken rib. One. It wasn't like, oh, I broke ribs. I broke one rib. Um, but man, did one rib cause a world of pain for my whole body. Uh, I mean, and so if you came up to me during that time and you said, hey, Dan, how are you? And I said, well, I broke a rib. And then you said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your rib. But how are you doing? I, wait, do you not understand how bodies work? Like, I, I broke a rib. And you said, you know, I, I hear you. But you're so much more than your rib. How are you? I just, I, 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 the conversation would be over. Um, all right, we know that's how bodies work. I had one broken rib. Right? It, it, the whole body suffered in that together. In order for me to flourish and to be able to grow, I needed even that one rib to be working well. Right? That's why Paul puts it like he does in verse 16. The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So just as God knit together your body, right? We were able to pray through that when we prayed through Psalm 139 earlier, right? Knit together. In the same way, Christ has equipped his spiritual body with different parts, different joints, different ligaments, different tendons, different gifts. But all of this, this wide variety of gifts that he's given to each is for the flourishing, the building up of the whole. Last week we noted that Christ has ascended as victorious king. And having ascended up, he sends down the Holy Spirit. That's why we focus so much on the Holy Spirit in our songs today. And he sends that on all his people. And by the Spirit from the hand of Christ, you have been equipped with spiritual gifts. In an odd conglomeration of opportunities in your life, they may be glamorous, they are probably not, all these opportunities you have. But your ability to use your spiritual gifts is dependent on other people using their spiritual gifts. And the point of your spiritual gifts is to build up others so that together in love we build up the body of Christ for his glory. So see, the ministers of the word, God has given them for the health of the body. But he's given them to equip the saints, you, to build up his body for his glory. Each part needs every part, no matter where you're at, no matter how invisible or invisible to the rest of the world your using of your gifts and your ministry is, God is using it to build up his body. So let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, again, we praise you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the one who has provided salvation and life for us. What a gift to be your body. This is no mere analogy that we can kind of leave behind, but this is how we are to see ourselves. Our Lord, our head, has ascended to heaven, and we are your spirit-equipped body here. Make us faithful, Lord. Free us from envy of others. Free us from, um, yeah, just the way we can look down on others for not having our gifts as well. And make us ones who are eagerly seeking to glorify you as we build each other up in love. In Jesus' name, amen.